Yeah. So I think it's also helpful to learn about how the ADHD brain works. It's not the kind of thing where you could be like, calm down. Okay. It, it takes time and then calm down. But also the people around them need to be patient. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Hello there! Before we begin, I would love to take a moment to share with you this review from a listener named Obs11. It's called also a late diagnosis, and this is spot on. If I had a nickel for every time I said, oh my God, while listening to this podcast, I'd be rich already. While there's nuances, I'm sure, to every diagnosis, it's like someone gave me a playbook to speak with my doctors. This has been so very helpful for me to not only understand myself, but my daughter. My daughter was diagnosed right before COVID hit, so it was a huge adjustment for us both to go through this diagnosis for her, adjustment to virtual schooling, and also have myself diagnosed at age 39, then start treatment for us both while living on top of each other. I learn more with each interview and have a lot of healing in the process. It's just good to know there's so many of us going through this together. Thanks for all of you being willing to share your stories. Well, thank you, Obs. I'm so glad we could help you and your daughter through this diagnosis journey. And I agree. I also feel tremendous gratitude for all the women on this show who have shared their stories as we all go through this together. So thanks again for writing this lovely review. I cannot begin to describe how much your feedback means to me. Okay, here we are at episode 171, in which I interview Gilly Kahn. Gilly is a licensed clinical psychologist working in a private group practice in the Atlantic area. She specializes in individual and group therapy, focusing on neurodiversity, anxiety, and depression in youth. Gilly gravitated toward working with children and teens with ADHD and autism because, in her opinion, there's no better or wiser company. She eventually connected the dots in her own life and received an adult diagnosis of ADHD. She's now writing a book about ADHD and has recently started blogging for Attitude magazine. Gilly and I talk about the crossover between ADHD and migraines, as well as the impact of ADHD on emotional regulation. We also talk about the struggles to recognize and quantify ADHD in girls and how her practice as a psychologist has changed since her diagnosis. This was a lovely conversation. I can't wait for you to hear it. So here is my interview with Gilly. Well, welcome, Gilly Khan. Thank you so much for joining me. Of course. Thanks so much for having me here, Katie. I would love to hear about your story because I, um, you're not the first clinical psychologist who worked with children with autism and ADHD before being diagnosed. And I always find it so fascinating that like that light bulb moment, right? Where you're like, oh, everything makes sense now. So you were diagnosed in 2023, correct? Mm-hmm. And it was sort of signs from your young daughter that were kind of tipped you off that you, this might be something to look into for yourself. Is that right? That was a piece for a bit, but I think, you know, as a clinical psychologist, 
I'm sure other psychologists have also felt this way. It has been like a lifelong question in my brain. And we'll we'll get more into that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what was that journey like for you? And what were some of those things that really stood out to you where you started to put two and two together and think I should I should look into this for myself? Yeah. So um, I mean, I, you know, I think I was kind of an interesting kid and I had really different study habits. And that's a lot of, I think, what helped me kind of fly under the radar. And my dad being very, very strict. Um, So my mom passed away when I was four. She had breast cancer. And I was basically raised by my dad and my brother, two boys. Uh, But basically, because it was a single parent household, it was pretty much like military regime. And so I forgot textbooks and would get grounded for it. So I needed to somehow get my ducks in a row so I could go to the fourth grade dance (laughs) and not miss out. And so I had to just kind of learn these strategies. So my arm was constantly tattooed with pen marks, with reminders. Post-it notes were 100% my friend since day one. Um, And also, I was expected to have very high grades because my dad did not have high grades. And it's always like, you want for your child what you did not have. So I felt like there was a lot of pressure placed on me. So I spent a lot of time studying in my walk-in closet. (laughs) And that's because it was different and quiet. So I would sit on the floor studying. And when I wasn't doing that, I was on my bed with all the books spread across, and I would move from task to task, highlighting and writing on this side, and or I would be on the dining room table, and my family loved that. Um, and anytime someone walked by, I would flip out because they were interrupting my train of thought. Um, and so these are just a few of the very many examples where I can think back to when I was really, really young and say like, oh. (laughs) The signs were there all along, right? (laughs) Yes, the signs were there all along. Yeah, and the other thing is now there's just, sadly now, um, there's a lot more clarity about the differences in the presentation of ADHD in women versus men. I mean, I think the diagnostic and professional community has a lot of way to catch up. But for example, while studying psychology, I noticed like my brain does not shut up. And so I sort of thought, you know, is this generalized anxiety disorder? Uh, Because GAD is basically your brain worrying all the time. And I would think like, well, what do I think about, you know? Well, I think about like this thing that I have to do and um, planning and all these random things. I'm not worrying. My brain is just on. And that is more characteristic of ADHD in women because it's more of a hidden symptom. Um, so that was all. I think it was sort of like a growth thing 
for me. Um, and, you know, just looking at my daughter and I mean, she's six, so we're going to be taking her soon to get another opinion from a professional. But since she was two, my husband and I have been like, and other family members are just like, she is like the Energizer Bunny. I mean, and we're just like, where does she get it from? Yeah, right here. <laughs> yeah. That's a really interesting connection that I hadn't thought about in terms of the generalized anxiety and the fact that it's you're it's much more a case of working memory and trying to like hold on to all the thoughts of things that need to happen that there's not necessarily always worry attached to the generalized anxiety and that's a really great like distinction for those of us who have that, you know, many of us who have the brain that won't shut up and then we're always wondering like why am I so exhausted all the time? But it's, I think it's a coping mechanism for like, how do I hold on to all of these things that I'm going to forget about? So you're right. There's not necessarily that textbook like worry associated with it. And I think, you know, I think like for myself and I'm sure for many of us, I didn't realize everybody wasn't like that. (laughs) So it was really interesting to me to understand as I got older that like this was not a universal experience to constantly have those racing thoughts. Yeah, Yeah, really interesting. Now, you had shared uh, a reel on your Instagram about reading your diary from when you were 14 and some of those diary entries that and it was so oh, my goodness, it was just like got me in the feels because I just it brought me back to all of those moments of feeling so misunderstood in school. Can you so do you want to just talk about that experience? I mean, it must have been I wish I had the mental energy to go back and read my diaries. (laughs) Um, But what was that like for you going back and seeing that 14 year old version of you? Yeah. I mean, I think looking at it through the lens of ADHD and rejection sensitive dysphoria, you know, it, it was really interesting because I can start to sort of check the boxes with, um, the things that I'm describing when I'm 14, 15 and, Honestly, I, you know, I haven't changed that much. I'm still the same person at the core. The difference is that I have a better understanding of how I work and how to treat it. I think medication was the number one thing that changed my life. I know that ADHD is highly heritable, but I have felt it um, since I remember graduate school uh, role-playing with someone um, and pretending to be depressed. And in my head, I was like, I don't even need to pretend uh, because it was, you know, it was persistent depressive disorder. Um, And yeah, I mean, that's what I was diagnosed with first. Um, But I'm sure I'm not the only woman who was diagnosed with depression or anxiety before ADHD. And just recently, I mean, this whole Pandora's box of information was opened about why that is for women. You know, dopamine is not just restricted to ADHD. It's involved in depression, in migraines, in hormonal imbalances. And I think that just points to really how complicated women are. And how I think, um, you know, sort of unfair it is that the criteria have really just been designed 
to describe boys. The Pandora's box is such a great way of describing the hormone question and ADHD, because it does feel like, wow, like, where do we even begin with that in terms of the roles that estrogen and progesterone and dopamine are playing in our, in our, the, that difference in experience. Now you had, you said, mentioned that you not only had PCOS, but also chronic migraines and that both of them have a high comorbidity with ADHD. I didn't know about the migraines as much. Um, what have you learned about that? Um, so there's a, a podcast episode on um, Attitude Magazine. By the way, I'm going to start blogging for them. My first one is going to come out on my birthday. Woohoo! Congrats. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but there's a podcast episode. I'll, maybe I'll send you the link and then you can link it. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so so she talks about the link between migraines and ADHD. And uh, one thing I remember that she said that really stuck with me, because it's true for me, is that stimulants can help some people with migraines. So if you take a stimulant, it can relieve your symptoms. Um, and I was just, you know, that was interesting to me. And my migraines are honestly like immortal. Like it is impossible to defeat one once I get one. Um, and so, you know, I noticed I had, I took like a short acting stimulant. My symptoms were gone, my migraine, and then it wore off. Migraine comes back. So I think it, it there really is kind of like a, a chemical imbalance happening. Oh, and there's, um, uh, an audible book by Maria Konnikova, and uh, it's called Migraine. It's very short. I think it's like an hour and a half listen or something. But she talks about the history of migraines in women, and it's just very similar, I think, to the history of ADHD in women, uh, because initially migraines were attributed to uh, psychological factors for women. Like, oh, you know, she has a migraine, it must be in her head, you know, pun intended. Uh, but if it's a man, then there's a physical reason. For it. Does that sound <laughs> familiar? Um, <laughs> oh, she's, you know, she's having a hard time concentrating. It must be depression or anxiety. Why would it be anything else? <laughs> yeah. Uh, she's just a hysterical woman, right? You know, actually, when you were talking, it reminded me of the fact that I recently learned that amphetamines were accidentally discovered as ADHD medication because they were originally pre were prescribing them for headaches in children. And they noticed oh. that when they were, yeah, and they were originally trying to treat he uh, chronic headaches in children, and then they realized that it was increasing their focus and productivity. And so that's kind of how stimulants became, you know, ADHD medication. So there we go, right? That's cool. Uh, it's all coming back to that. But also, I think, you know, when we talk about like, chronic stressors, and women, I think there's so much to uncover around how that affects our nervous system. Because you think about like autoimmune diseases are on the rise, especially with young women, right? And so it's like PCOS, fibromyalgia, lupus, like all of these autoimmune disorders 
are radically increasing in women who are incredibly stressed and depressed and and, you know, and also getting all of these diagnoses of depression and anxiety and and, and like it's all freaking connected it's like i feel like the person you know all the red strings up on the wall right? yes that's exactly it right like i'm like uh you know like closeted serial killer like I know it is so fascinating and so like you said tragic that women have been under researched for so long and you know one of the other things I'm curious about is the when the diagnostic criteria brought the three subtypes under the ADHD umbrella right I feel like that ended up being a real disservice to women because of the hyperactivity element. And so many of us who were like, well, I'm not hyperactive, so that's it doesn't describe me. And do you know why that move was made to kind of put the subtypes under that one umbrella? What is the like yeah. the logic behind that? Okay, so there were um, subtypes now, and you can ask anyone, like, I don't know, Russ Barkley does not stop about this. Their presentation, you know? <laughs> not subtypes. And it's an important distinction, apparently, because subtypes are, guess I guess, like a solid, right? So like, if it's a type, that means you have inattentive throughout your life. And researchers soon realize that that's not the case. Um, like you can be diagnosed with combined as a kid, and then maybe it can change presentations um, as you get older and manifest more as inattentive. So it's like more fluid. But my understanding is that initially the types were introduced to um, generalize more to women. When I remember in graduate school learning about how women are more likely to present with a predominantly inattentive presentation because we're seen as sort of like space cadets who will, you know, kind of day the daydreamer in class, right? Like, oh, meek old me. Um, but also, you know, that's not the case. I mean, there it's so complicated because there are so many societal expectations that are placed on women. It's not that necessarily we are mellow and space cadets and daydreamers. Um, it could also just be that we're better able to hold our stuff together. And there are actually brain differences between females and males showing that this is true um, because females, their um, planning and organizational skills, their prefrontal cortex is developed before males. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're able to figure it out. Also, women have better social skills than men. So we're able to mask or adapt to our environments. And I forgot what the question was. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but it's so fascinating. What I also find so interesting are, you know, the, the sort of biological differences between the two sexes and the brains, but also the fact that one of the, you know, that there's such a high co-occurrence with ADHD and gender dysphoria and like gender nonconformity, which is fascinating to me too, because I'm like, where does all the where does the biology end and the socialization begin, et cetera, right? Like it's so interesting um in terms of how different our experiences are in childhood and and how anxiety really seems to be the key 
you know, I, it was um, uh, uh, William Dodson who was like, you know, if somebody is previously diagnosed with depression and anxiety, it's almost a precursor to like definitely look into neurodivergence um, with that that co- you know, that double diagnosis. But I think anxiety in women is so much higher. I don't know if I don't have facts to back that up. That's just anecdotal. <laughs> but but like, you know, it's I think there's so many of those experiences where you're like, well, I have these moments of in my history of my life that could indicate that I'm a depressed person, right? Like it there it's so hard to parse what of this is trauma from childhood and what of this is a biological neuro neurotype. Yeah. I think one thing that's that's been helpful for me, I remember since I was a, a student, is just reconceptualizing um, mental health symptoms. Because right now, the way the DSM has it, and this is not a new topic, um, it's very it kind of places people into boxes. It's categorical, you know, and you'll say like, oh, no, it's not categorical. It's presentations. It is. It's a category like you're placing someone in a category. And that's different than looking at how symptoms naturally co-occur. So before I got my PhD in clinical psychology, I got my master's in experimental psychology. And what I studied were friendships, uh, peer relationships. And there was one statistical method that was really cool. I never learned how to do it. It was too complicated. But I understand the gist of it. Um, And (laughs) the gist is, Basically, you know how you were saying, like, you know, the closeted serial killer with all of the right piecing the pieces together. (laughs) But that's how it's called network analysis. And that's basically what it is. It's uh, examining social networks, meaning like how people relate to each other. This person's friends with this person who's friends with this person. And this one's not necessarily in this group, but they're connected through this person. um, And all these strings are tying these people together. So there's a researcher at Harvard named uh, Richard McNally. And I went to a conference and I saw that he was doing work um, with symptoms using the same type of analysis. So basically he was entering a bunch of symptoms. So maybe it's like a few PTSD symptoms, you know, depression, anxiety, it could even be ADHD. And he's just looking at how everything kind of naturally co-occurs and how that could be a new way to think about or conceptualize mental illness, as opposed to kind of, you know, boxing people in. Now, of course, this complicates the picture, because for a lot of people, this is going to be different. But that's the point of statistics, right? I mean, they're going to see, I mean, statistics should just show like what's, which symptoms tend to co-occur or tend to be lumped together more frequently than others, just like friendships, right? Relationships, people. And I think that would probably be a very helpful way to analyze the symptoms in women because they are so diverse. If you have ADHD, it can often feel overwhelming to find the right treatment. 
And then when you finally do get an appointment with your local clinician, there's no guarantee that they will have the adequate background or understanding of ADHD in adults, especially in women. You might end up leaving that appointment more confused and disheartened than when you entered. That's where Dunn comes in. Dunn is an online ADHD care platform that can get you all the resources you need to help manage your ADHD. With experienced clinicians who know exactly what to look for, you can start getting personalized care as soon as today or tomorrow. Take a free one-minute assessment and book an appointment with a licensed ADHD clinician as soon as the next day. Get continuous care, one-click refills, insurance coverage, and 24-7 care team support with Dunn for just $79 a month and pharmacy co-pays as low as $0. Visit get.dunnfirst.com podcast to learn more. Again, that's get.dunnfirst.com podcast. Done. Turn ADHD into your strength. I think also in, uh, uh, what was I going to ask? I don't remember now. I think it was something about, um, what were we talking? You were talking about, oh God. Ugh. Oh, well, I'm going to leave this all in the podcast. Cause I love when this happens. It's so indicative of how these conversations go. Maybe it'll come back. Oh no, I know what I was saying. I was like, uh, now being back in school for clinical mental health counseling, it's fascinating to me how this is just not ever looked at. Like I look at these case studies and it's like every single case study I'm diagnosing ADHD. And so I'm like, am I getting right. this wrong? Like, am, is this something else? But every single person, especially the ones with depression, it's like, they're not living up to their potential. They're unfulfilled. Like it just feels like ADHD is everywhere in these case studies, which makes sense because, you know, undiagnosed ADHD tends to lead to those questions of like, what is wrong with me? Right. And that was kind of what I saw in that diary entry that you read, that feeling of, of just like, I worked really, really hard on this thing that was really important to me and my teacher shit all over it. And now I feel like my entire life purpose is in question. Right. And that like jumping from zero to a billion in our emotional range and and that emotional piece that goes with ADHD that then leads to so much of the depression and anxiety. And yet emotional dysregulation is not mentioned in the DSM. It's not part of the diagnosis. Uh, why is why is emotion, is it just too difficult to quantify? Like, is that why it's just yeah. not part? Okay. Because it just feels like for so oh, the overwhelming majority of us, that's how we kind of connect to the ADHD diagnosis is through the emotional element and the dysregulation and stuff. And and so I know you specialize with kids and emotional dysregulation, right? I guess how has your own diagnosis maybe changed how you work with patients? Oh, a hundred percent. Yes, it's like what you were saying. Like, look, people come in, you're just like, am I getting this wrong? Um, but yeah, I don't think you are. I think it's that we're catching up now. You know, I, I think that, you know, there was this large discrepancy in diagnosis, uh, and the prevalence apparently between boys and girls. But now that there's a better understanding, at least among women of ADHD and females, uh, we're better able to, I think, detect it. I always kind of wondered, I mean, since I was young, I'm trying to think, I think maybe my first job working with with autistic kids was, um, I was 19. And it was my first experience working with anyone with autism. And I remember thinking, like, I don't know what it is. I just love these kids. It was so rewarding. And the picture that people would paint is like, it's really hard to connect with them. 
And I thought like, I can't connect with anyone more than I can connect with them. And I felt that way also with kids with ADHD and working with, you know, college students with ADHD, I would teach them what I did basically when I was younger. And I was like, there's no way in hell I don't have ADHD. (laughs) (laughs) I'm basically telling them like, here, do what I did when I was a kid. And it really helped them. And so that also kind of made me think about going to get help. And then we can talk about how difficult it is to go and get help. Um, What was the question? The diary entry? Well, and just how has your own diagnosis changed the way you work with your, with, I guess, children, clients in general? Yeah, I think I'm just more sensitive, like to, to detect it. Like, for example, I have seen a lot of teenage girls come into the practice and the parents will describe them as sort of like problem children. And they'll say they're very explosive and the girls have a lot of remorse. Like they don't want to be that way. And also I witness it. Like they're, they, they are semi-explosive. Um, they're not breaking anything, but it's sort of like they will, you know, burst out of my office like at any moment because they're mad. And it causes problems at school too. Like with teachers, um, you know, tutors will quit on them. And they often struggle with math. And I think I have an undiagnosed math disability, like 100%. But typically, this is looked at as, you know, there's a new diagnosis in the DSM-5 called DMDD, Disruptive Mood Dysregulation Disorder, which is basically, you know, explosiveness uh, that is the result of sort of like underlying irritability. So it's under the category of mood disorders. And before I learned more about ADHD in women, that was my first thought, even for my daughter, I thought like, you know, what is this DNDD? Like she, you know, she flips out over the smallest thing. You know, is she breaking objects? No, it just takes her a long time to move on. And she's very emotional. Um, And I was like that too but I don't think I had DMDD. There just wasn't a category for it. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it it's affected my referral for testing. Also the way I work with the parents. So I basically work with them to help them see that it's like not the kid trying to be difficult because they're remorseful. If anything, they probably are punishing themselves more than their parents are punishing them. So how can the parents support them to teach them skills to move past the emotion, which is inevitable, and also be accepted by family members and just society at large? Yeah, so I think it's also helpful to learn about how the ADHD brain works. It's not the kind of thing where you could be like, calm down, okay, it, it takes time. So you need to remove yourself from the situation and then, you know, use some coping skills to calm down, but also the people around them need to be patient. Right. And I think, yeah, like you said, understanding the why underneath that uh, is so important and understanding that if the intention 
is there. It's just the, it's your actions aren't reflecting your intentions. And that's another thing that I don't see talked about a lot in the mental health curriculum, which is this element of frustration that is inherent in in a lot of our depressive diagnoses, which is this idea of like, I want to do the thing. I just can't figure out how, right. I can't get there. And so the, that intention is there. It's just the inability and then the frustration. And I feel like that alone, that element of frustration that leads us to get so angry and start asking those questions of what's wrong with me, I'm such a disappointment, that is key to the like difference between, say, neurodivergent depression and something else. But I don't know, like, I feel like with children, too, a lot of the literature around raising children with ADHD is much, you know, is about like, let's help them succeed and let's get them to be good at school. And a lot of it feels like rejecting their inherent self. Yes. So a lot of the help kind of feels like a a wolf in sheep's clothing where it's like children maybe are interpreting your intentions to help as judgment, right? And so then they get these diagnoses of PDA and ODD and you're like, well, (laughs) of course they're going to be demanded, avoided. Like they're feeling like their whole self is being put on trial in a lot of the ways in which parents are taught to work with children. And I just feel like I feel myself wanting to work with children and teens more and more the more I'm getting further in this field because I'm just like, I feel like it's damaging some some of the, you know, some of the ways in which they're taught to like, even some of the executive functioning coaching, not to just cast such a wide net, but I do feel like some of that is really like, there's just this inherent judgment in their autonomy as humans that I find is is upsetting. Yeah. And I think it's so natural, like just in Western culture to have this emphasis on academics. And that's not the most important thing in life. And it's hard to to remember that. Um, Like I was recently, you know, touring schools and thinking, what do I want for my kids? Um, My daughter, especially as she's entering the first grade. And do I want more academic rigor? And then, you know, I thought about it and I was like, why fix it if it ain't broke? She's happy. Um, I don't want to place academic rigor on her. And then she comes out unhappy. I want her to love learning and I want her to be doing the things that she loves to do. Because if I place her in a standard, you know, curriculum that is demanding then it's only going to be, you know, my story all over again. So I think, you know, it's just, it's important to remind that of parents. And I have, I thought the same exact thing that, that you just said, because I was looking at what's out there regarding um, blogs and just articles for parents um, of kids with ADHD. And I would say like maybe 98% of them have to do with school. Right. Yeah. yeah it's like. I'm like, first of all, I'm bored reading this. <laughs> I don't want to read about school, you know? And, <laughs> and second of all, like your child is a human, just like you are, you know? Like it's not all about school. And the other thing is, you know, the way that schools are designed, it, they're not necessarily designed for your kid. So if you're telling them, you know, here's how you should succeed at school, you know, I mean, I know this is like very unrealistic and maybe in the future, but maybe the schools (laughs) need to be the ones to change a thing or two. Yeah. Even as a parent, I have so many, so much conflict around this because 
I had a very different upbringing, which is like I had two older brothers who were did really well in school and were I both went into Ivy League schools and scholarships and all the things. And I was not that kid. And my parents didn't really know what to do with me, but they weren't they didn't pressure me. In, in an academic way, they were sort of like, well, that's fine. Every, you know, not everybody is an A student. You, and they would say things like, you don't have book smarts, you have street smarts, and that's fine. Like, you know, fine. We just want you to be happy. And all the things that you would think on paper sound like good parenting. <laughs> but I always felt looking back that I was adrift and I didn't have structure. And like, I really needed more accountability from my parents because my, so much of my sense of self-worth was tied to the traditional success roots of grades and college and all of that, right? And so I kept trying to stay within that narrative. And so I felt like, you know, I really wish that I had had maybe not such a, you know, rigorous um, upbringing, but like a little bit more structure. So I really, now as a parent, I'm like, what do I do? Like, I want them to feel good about themselves and I want them to feel like they're succeeding, so I do feel like they need that pressure from me. But at the same time, I don't want to be that parent who's like, you got a 98, where's the other 2%, which is what is happening in my, which is what's happening in my head. I mean, that's immediately where my brain goes, right? <laughs> like there is that part that's like, you have to be as good as possible. Otherwise you're anything below perfect is a failure, which I feel like a lot of us have that tendency, right? That perfectionism, that, that anxiety about performance and, I don't know. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. No, you're right. There needs to be a balance. There needs to be a balance between structure and, right? And so now let's build a robot parent that can implement all of it. All right. I love it. Well, let's outsource parenting to our AI bots. I love it. Exactly. <laughs> We'll just be good cop in the background being like, who wants cookies? Uh, <laughs> now, your partner your was has been on board with all of this. Have you had a conversation with your brothers or one brother or two brothers? You had one brother. Yeah, one brother. Okay. Have you talked to any of your family members? Do you see neurodivergence everywhere you look? Um. So since I started posting on social media, then I have had people in my family messaging me like, hey, I have ADHD too, you know, but it wasn't, it's not something that is, you know, announced through a loudspeaker, but you know what, there's, it's complicated. Like my, you know, my family is not American, like we're Israeli. So honestly, growing up, my, you know, my family used to say that psychologists were stupid and Kids don't need psychologists. And here I am. So I don't know. Just mental health in general is was more stigmatized, I think, for generations before us. And I see it too in my practice where parents bring their kids in and I could totally see it in the parents, but they don't have a diagnosis and they're just like, oh yeah, look at my kid. Or, and this is something I, I like, I think maybe one of my posts is about this too. Like in the paperwork, it'll say family history. And it's like, oh, you answered all the questions. And then you get to family history and it says no answer given. <laughs> what? Like you're bringing your kid in and then, I mean, 
So maybe there isn't any family history, maybe, although that would be very surprising to me, or it's just not known because they didn't seek out any help or they just, they're like, you know what, I'm irrelevant. Um, They don't even write there. So I think there's very much still very heavy stigma. Um, It's a little bit less than it was in the past, but I think that probably contributes to just um, lack of awareness about like family history regarding mental health. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The Lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working, and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's the ADHDlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to the ADHDlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyper-focus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, It's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. Two of the things I really struggled with with my diagnosis was, you know, evidence in childhood, which I think is, you know, an important part of the diagnosis. But at the same time, oftentimes nobody was looking, nobody knew what to look for. So there wasn't really evidence, you know, so many of us were masking and white knuckling it through a lot of experiences. And so there isn't obvious you know, teachers don't recognize it in girls, right? Because they don't, they're, it's not something to look for. So there isn't really technically evidence in childhood. And then the other thing I think is women especially struggle with, which is like how much is, you know, it has to be a serious impediment throughout your life, right? So you have to then ask, how much was I struggling? And when you come from this belief that you're not doing enough and that you were just lazy, like it doesn't feel like struggle. It feels like you're the problem. And so that was a big thing for me, which was like, I never acknowledged how much I was struggling because I felt like, well, the only reason I'm struggling is because I'm not doing enough or I'm not working hard enough or I'm not figuring it out. And so it was really like, I don't feel like many times we 
forget that there were serious impediments because of the ADHD. We just think we were screwing up. And so that I think is a really like a difficult one to kind of look through when you're looking over the before a diagnosis, which is like, how do you even quantify the struggle um, when women are especially are, you know, we are given all of the, you know, the, the chores and domestic tasks and all this stuff that we hate. And yes, we struggle with it. But like, is are we really struggling? Right. Uh, that question. Right. And then there's standardized testing. Um, I took the SAT in preparation for my applications for college, the SAT three times, and I'm not done, the ACT three times, six times. Like six times I sat through this exam. Um, and it's because I really, really struggled with it. Yet in college, I basically had a 4.0 uh, because I was able to take my time, choose what I got to study. Um, and then a lot of my exams, because my second major was creative writing, were writing assignments, um, which allowed me to sit and reflect. And that's how I work best, not under timed conditions not in these, you know, cookie cutter ways uh, where I need to complete all of these difficult math problems and to read to myself silently and somehow retain the information. And the, and the subjects in there, oh my God. I mean, like, they're so boring. I mean, I would pray that there would be something about psychology in there. And of course there wasn't. Um, <laughs> after six times, you would think you would come across one article, right? But yeah, I think, you know, I, kids are lucky now. The fact that colleges are moving away from standardized testing and, uh, requiring it, I think it's the right move. Um, and it's really going to, I think, allow more diversity and, I think allow a lot of people to prove themselves because, you know, imagine if I that wasn't required for me. Like, I don't know what my future would have looked like if it would have been different. I mean, I'm happy where I am, but um, man, that was a struggle. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm lucky I w was racing Canada, so I didn't have to do any standardized testing and um was trying to face, I was facing the, uh, the concept of doing the GRE to go to grad school. And I was terrified because I just knew I was like, this is not going to reflect my knowledge. And it was just so disheartening to know that. And then uh, the just before, you know, right before I was applying the for the year that I applied for grad school, they dropped the GRE requirement. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> um, so, and that seems to be the trend now with a lot of graduate programs, which I'm like, oh, thank God, right? Where they're actually taking the time to look at, you know, because I'm like sitting here, I'm like 48 years old. I have a lifetime of of achievement. And I'm like, you really are going to discount all of that if for this score of this four-hour test I took? Yeah, it was so. Yeah. And that's how they threw people in the trash, like complete applications if you didn't meet the cutoff. Um, I don't know how we got on this topic. <laughs> So, okay. So I want to hear about your book. So I'm, uh, so you're blogging for Attitude Magazine, which by the way, to their credit, their most recent issue, I guess it's the December issue. Uh, it, I just got it in the mail the other day. It had a, a whole article about like college isn't for everyone. Right. And like, this shouldn't be the standard of success yes. that we measure intellect by. And that a lot of people with ADHD are much more geared toward 
you know, more like uh, directive courses, right? That might come from community college or skill building and all of that, like much more structured than just a liberal arts degree that's going to cost them $200,000 that they're going to have to pay off. Like, I I was really impressed because I feel like that is a conversation that's really difficult to initiate um, in our society. But at the same time, it's I feel like we need to have it, especially with tuition the way it is. And and debt, uh, you know, grad school debt and all the things that people with ADHD are terrible at dealing with. Like, I just feel like a four-year college for my own kids, I'm like, I don't know if that's really something we want to be pushing as the end all in terms of life success. But anyway, um, I want to hear about your book. So, <laughs> uh, so you, so, well, congratulations. Are you writing about the diagnostic process or or what is the So I am still in the beginning phases um but I got a literary agent who I love um so I'm working with her and I'm working with Ann Bartolucci <laughs> Oh no way oh that's awesome <laughs> on your show Yeah she's my writing coach I love her um but yeah so I it's you know everything is a work in progress but my title is basically how I conceptualize ADHD, sensitive and selective. Uh, so I think that, you know, emotion dysregulation needs to find its way into the criteria. And also it's not an attention deficit. It's selectivity of attention, because when we're interested in something like, especially for me, like I'm a stubborn mofo, like I'm all in. Uh, and so select, it's selective attention. It's not that I don't have attention. I have too much of it. And so it's about ADHD and women. But I think what, what sets this apart, and I guess this is nice prep for that too, is that there's a memoir component. Um, so I write about my life in there. I write about my experiences as a clinical psychologist. Uh, working with people with ADHD. And there's a self-help component too. So there are also like tips and future directions. And so I think what will be nice about it, and this is what I'm trying to do, is try to make uh, the language as accessible as possible. So that way, um, anyone could understand it. Amazing. That's great. And I, so I assume that I imagine the blog writing will help with that too, in terms of some, some regular deadlines. <laughs> I feel like that's the hardest thing with book writing is the, is breaking it down into the smaller deadlines and smaller steps, but it sounds like you've got a great team working with you. That's amazing. Right. Yeah. That's a piece of it. And that's advice I would give. I think anyone you know, anyone with ADHD who has a big goal that they're trying to accomplish. Like initially, I remember working through, you know, should I go the traditional publishing route? Should I go the self-publishing route? And I was like, if I go the self-publishing route, it's going to end up like all the half-read books on my shelf. Like, it's just not going to happen. You know, it's not. Um, and it's going to be too hard for me. People are like, you hire a team. I'm like, that would mean I would have to sit and find a team. <laughs> 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 you know, like you get to know yourself. I was like, I need someone to hold my hand. Um, and I need someone, you know, who can help me through the process. So yeah. So I think, you know, that that's helpful and um probably help others with ADHD as well. And it would actually get accomplished too, right? As opposed to like you said, the one of the many ideas that ends up on the 
on the spread out on the dining room table until somebody walks along and distracts us. I love it. I love how we're like <laughs> hooking in all of these pieces of the conversation from earlier. Right? Bringing in the earlier. Well, I, you know, it's funny because there's, it reminded me of this story that I've often thought about with my sixth grade teacher because I would always do these like really, really creative projects and um, with book reports, I would always want to like do a display and you know, Polaroid pictures and always do these like multi-level diorama type presentations. And I would always like get a B, you know, and I would work so hard on them and I would get a B and everybody else. And right. And I remember like there would always be some kind of like just heart wrenching criticism from my teacher about how I didn't work hard enough and I didn't put enough effort in. And and I remember it was the end of sixth grade. So I was about to like move. It was my elementary school went to sixth grade. So we were about to move up to the next junior high and it was the last project of the year and I went to Mrs. Carly if she's I can't imagine if she's out there listening but I went to her and I was like how do I get an A plus like I just want an A plus before I graduate and she was like well you know this is you just have to put the effort in and you have to work really hard and you just have to do more and it was just like all this really unhelpful advice for somebody like me and I remember going home and I did it it was on a Hawaii and on the country of Hawaii and I just went and sat down with an Encyclopedia Britannica and I just copied it out like I just copied out the Encyclopedia Britannica of Hawaii and it was like 50 pages of the most boring mundane facts about this state <laughs> um it was just boring facts about like their weather and you know all this stuff it was just it was so sad and I handed it in and I got an A plus and it was like this life lesson that was taught to me about like where you know, the concessions that you have to make, you know, and I'm just like, obviously, at the time had no idea this was ADHD related. But now looking back at that poor sixth grader, and like, it just makes me so sad to think of that how it was just like, I finally got that A plus, but it was so hollow, because it just felt like, really, like, that's, that's all it took, you know. And I just feel like it's such a reflection on how like is it like how our essence, right? Our beauty, our wonderful, the wonderfulness about the ADHD brain is just like can be so extinguished so quickly uh, in childhood. That's exactly the word I was going to use, right? Coming from Hanukkah and thinking about all the candles, like right, <laughs> just tuning oh. out. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, gosh. Oh. And then like, right. And then to think about the emotional element and and how it's just never discussed, like it's just not even talked about in assessment. So I'm so glad to have your perspective out there. And I'm so excited to to see more of your work. And I love your uh, Instagram channel. So I hope I know that's a lot of work. So um, I I hope it stays interesting (laughs) for you. Try to outsource as much as you can. That's my advice. Because I'm like, it gets really boring really quick. And I, I don't know, I find I got burnt out. And I'm always amazed at Instagram creators because it's. I think it is such an incredible platform. I'm not though. I started in September. I was off social media for seven years. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned it was ADHD related. Was it rejection sensitivity related? Cause I, Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had a few of those where I just like, I had to leave Facebook um, entirely. I have a really difficult relationship with social media. <laughs> I feel like that's a whole other episode. <laughs> so, so speaking of the, the name ADHD, it's obviously a question I love to a- ask. Do you have a name you would give it? Yeah. So Honestly, I, so I wrote like some notes about this because I think it's a complicated 
answer. Um, but I was thinking like, what would I fit in? I would fit in the emotional components. But the other thing is that I am not a fan of types or presentations. I think it should be considered a continuum or a spectrum like autism is. Why shouldn't ADHD? They're under the same category. So I think it should be, I don't know, we're really going to simplify it across like genders and everything. It might be like executive functioning spectrum condition. I don't like disorder. Yeah. I feel like clinicians are moving away from ASD for that same reason, right? Or is it mostly just the uh, the autistic community that's moving away from ASD? From what? Like the disorder piece? Yeah, that term. Yes. Yeah. Amazing. So do you do group coaching with kids or is it mostly adults? So I started the, I call it pre plus teen because the ages are like 11 to 15 social skills group at the practice. Um, so yeah, it's, it's with kids, not with adults, but I see a few adults for individual therapy too, but most of my work is actually with teens. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that because I feel like your perspective is so important and God, I wish 13 year old me could have had some exposure to some positive validation a little more. Um, so that's amazing. I think my favorite thing is when they complain about adults, like their teachers and the group. I'm just like, I'm in with the kids. <laughs> I'm one of you guys. Uh, well, this has been so great. Thank you so much for reaching out. I'm so glad we got to meet. And wow, you're doing some amazing stuff. So keep it up. And I look forward to reading your book and, and say hi to Anna. And <laughs> <laughs> wonderful take care thank you so much of course katie thank you so much to you too i mean for me it's like this is nothing like you are dedicating your life to it and to sharing women's stories and there's no better way i think to do it than through a podcast so thank you for the time that you are devoting to to this oh well thank you there you have it Thank you for listening, and I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. If you'd like to find out more about me and my coaching programs, head over to womenandadhd.com. If you're a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD and you'd like to apply to be a guest on this podcast, visit womenandadhd.com slash podcast guest, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Also, you know we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I totally get it, please just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may be struggling and they don't even know why. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered she's not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD. And she's now on the path to understanding her neurodivergent mind and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then.